Well, we're on the verge now of reaching the point where uh, collapse is a real possibility. From coast. To coast? To coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. So, is sustainable development a contradiction? Are there limits to economic growth? Will technology save us? Do individual actions matter? Is capitalism even sustainable? Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Dylan Hall. I'm Jason Wong. And I'm Sydney Kerbonic, and we will be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Those are big questions, Dylan. And we have two very different perspectives on these coming up very soon. From Hoi Song Lee, the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and from Bill Rees, Professor Emeritus from the University of British Columbia. So greenhouse gas emissions are increasing. And in addressing the craziness of climate change, we're going to be asking some pretty big questions today. First big question, what do you two think? Like, do individual actions matter? Do you matter? I think that one of the most powerful things uh, that I've learned is that the actions that you choose to do can really influence other people. And, you know, through collective action over time, you really start to see a meaningful impact. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel too. Whenever I bring reusable containers to like grocery stores in the market and I'm like, can you fill this up please? They always look at me funny and I feel like the more I do it, the more they're not going to look at me funny. So yes, I think individual actions do matter. And some people would say like statistically on a planet of 7 billion people or when you have large amounts of consumption and production coming from government and industry rather than quote-unquote consumers, that at a global scale, your ability to bring reusable bags to the grocery store doesn't actually make a difference. How would you respond? I think uh, one of the biggest sources of emissions, of greenhouse gas emissions in the world, is from uh, basically the, the meat industry. And personal choices have a huge impact on how that industry operates. Um, so I myself, I basically bounce between being a vegetarian or vegan, uh, depending on the month of the year. Um, and, but I've realized, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, a lot of my friends have started becoming vegetarian or even just committing to eating less meat in general. So having a shift to like a vegetarian population on the planet wouldn't happen unless you had individuals deciding to be vegetarians. Well, let's see what some of these folks at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had to say about this. Here's Terra Informa Ashley Coaches speaking with Bill Reese about his perspective on individual actions. So again, it's not an individual problem. What you do as an individual has no meaning uh, in the larger context. It, this is a collective problem that requires collective solutions. My name is William Rees. I'm a professor emeritus. I'm a retired professor of community and regional planning where I actually taught ecological economics and human ecology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And I was there as a full-time prof for 43, 44 years. What would you say is the relationship between human economy and biophysical activity? Uh, In a word, right now it's um, maladapted because the, the biophysical world operates according to fundamental principles of chemistry and physics, in particular something called the second law of thermodynamics. Every human structure is what is called dissipative. It requires an input of energy and material to maintain itself. And the only 
place we can acquire that is from the natural world. So basically, we've built an economy, uh, currently called the neoliberal economy, whose fundamental models make no reference whatsoever to the structure and function and dynamics of the biophysical system within which the economy operates. So it's a kind of an absurd situation. Uh, it, it's like trying to fly spaceship Earth using a 1955 Volkswagen Beetle uh, driver's manual. The, the economic models are so, so completely removed in their conceptual framing from the way the biophysical world operates that there's simply no way you can mesh these together sensibly. So we wind up with an economy uh, which is growth-oriented, which believes that growth is infinite as long as it's propelled by continuous uh, so-called uh, technological advances of one kind or another, particularly efficiency or what economists refer to as factor productivity. So if you think that the economy can grow indefinitely because we're getting more efficiently, uh, more efficient rather, uh, then you match that to a non-growing system which the economy has to feed upon, you've got the basis for a real problem. So the growth of the economy is entirely financed uh, through the consumption of nature. We are undermining the biophysical basis of our own existence. We're destroying basic life support systems such as uh, the soils, the uh, carbon cycle, that's why we're confronted with climate change, but the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, and a dozen other uh, dimensions of this problem are springing out at us in all directions. And it's, these are all, each of them, individual symptoms of this fundamental mismatch between the nature of our economic activity and the nature of the biophysical system that supports that activity. I call it fundamental human ecological dysfunction. Since every act of consumption results in an equivalent volume of waste production, ultimately, we're overwhelming the waste assimilation capacities of the natural system. Uh, people don't think of it this way, but climate change is a waste management problem. Precisely because carbon dioxide, one of the principal drivers of climate change, is the single largest waste product by weight from all industrial economies. And we're currently dumping about twice as much carbon into the atmosphere as can be assimilated by the photosynthetic processes and uh, carbon storage systems available in nature. So that's overshoot. We're literally uh, exceeding the capacity of the system to accommodate human activity. If you had a boat that was sinking and filling up with water, would you continue to fill it up with more stuff? No, but that's exactly what we're doing. Okay, well, that was cheerful. So, Bill Rees doesn't think individual actions matter. Next big question, what do you think about his ecological footprint conception? This idea that you can measure your impact on the planet on the ecology and many of us in privileged places like Canada have an impact of many planets. I think it's something like 7.6. Um, what, what do you think about that idea? Is it a useful one? Is it one that is problematic in any ways? I think it's certainly interesting. Um, I think Bill Reese's comments of you know looking at footprint to, to measure uh, our collective impact on the world is is interesting um i guess it in some ways ties to a lot of uh a lot of people's ideas about you know what what's the carrying capacity of our planet how many people can we feed 
talking about population being a bit of a something people really focus on and worry about, but maybe that's not the thing to focus on. One of the things I remember listening to Bill Reese speak was about how really it's consumption. And it's not population because there are some parts of the world that consume seven to eight times more than other parts of the world. So really the problem is excessive consumption in particularly developed areas like Canada and the US and Europe and a whole bunch of other places. But even if we redistribute our consumption habits evenly throughout population, it won't matter if, if our population keeps on increasing. It'll be, it'll be like a mute point, you know what I mean? If growth keeps happening, yeah, like eventually it won't be possible yeah. to even continue. Even if we all, co- even if we all consume at the same rate. So, so a lot of people who, uh, I guess, like that I mentioned, who uh, had brought population up as, as something, basically made the argument that populations will continue to increase, and even if we decrease the per consumption per person, eventually, because there will be more people. Um, we will still be strained for resources. Now, uh, this argument um, often falls into the category of climate racism because it, it, it looks at uh, people who live on the planet differently. If, if you look at their arguments, it basically uh, comes down to them making an argument that people in developing nations shouldn't have as many children. The, the data in the last few years has basically made their arguments a moot point because we've seen populations increase but we've also seen the rates of it change like the rate of the increase it hasn't been uh it hasn't been like this exponential growth that some people um have been predicting like overall i think in the world right now we're still seeing exponential growth but if you look at different nations uh and how they're growing you see that they're growing in a different way than like how canada or the united kingdom grew and many countries uh, many developing countries skipped landlines and went straight to having cell phones uh, a lot of countries are skipping steps in in how their populations are growing and we might be evening out soon I think the United Nations thinks that uh, in the next couple of decades like global populations will stabilize so if they do which uh, like the data is suggesting then we can we really should start focusing on that consumption per person so that's really interesting because you're almost suggesting that there's a way that humans could exist without having a solely negative impact on the planet or without having it be an exponentially growing impact on the planet. And I think that one of the one of my problems with Bill Reese's concept of the ecological footprint is taken to its logical conclusion. It implies that the world would be better off if we didn't exist, that our footprint and our impact is solely a negative thing. So it makes me wonder how possibly we could have a positive impact. But as it is right now, Bill Reese is correct. It's a negative impact. Yeah. And are we going to be able to stop that growth or is that physical growth going to be divorceable from something like economic growth? Can an increasing GDP in every country be sustained if our planet has limits? And those are big questions. I don't have answers to those, but 
One person who I did speak to at the IPCC conference last week was the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Hoi Sung Lee. He had something to say about exactly that question. I am chair of the IPCC. This year uh, will be the 30th year of the IPCC's establishment. It was uh, created by two uh, United Nations organizations. And in December of uh, 1988, the UN General Assembly endorsed IPCC's as an entity. And the uh, IPCC is uh, mandated to assess the scientific understanding uh, of issues related to climate change. You have a background in natural resource economics. I'm interested particularly in the fossil fuel economics of climate change and trying to address that. You know, technology plays uh, will play a very important role. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, carbon capture and storage uh, is just one of uh, the technologies that deal with the, uh, the carbon emissions uh, from the uh, fossil uh, energy resources. There are other options to deal with the uh, GHG, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions, uh, like uh, the use of renewable technologies in the power generation. Also, the, uh, the use of uh, the improved energy efficiency technologies in the consumption sector, such as buildings, transport, and uh, industries. Technology will play a, a great deal of role. Do you think that a lot of those fossil fuels in the ground can be burned and then have technological solutions to change that and adapt to that? Or do you think that we have to actually stop burning at a certain point? It, it is very clear that the main achieving two degree uh, Celsius stabilization will require a, a transformation of um, energy sector. By the end of this century, globally, we must be able to achieve a net zero carbon emissions. Do you think that exponential economic growth can continue if we're going to prevent climate change? So do you think that sustainable capitalism is possible? It is very likely that technology in the future um, will be very different from the ones we do see right now. But uh, due to that uh, phenomena of uh, e economic uh, activity hitting the uh, limits that, uh, provided by the nature's uh, inherent uh, capability, uh, the argument is that the uh, future technological development uh, will be in the direction of saving these precious uh, natural resources. So he was very optimistic. What do you folks think? Will technology save us? Personally, I'm quite doubtful. To be honest, I don't think like technology is the only thing. I think there has to be some kind of systems change, some kind of social change. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what the IPCC was talking about, was a shift in culture. Although one, uh, one interesting uh, trend in technology uh, recently, and I think you can see this in legislation uh, that was just enacted in California, is that technology is helping to create some cultural change too. So uh, the legislation that just passed in California requires that manufacturers of different like consumer devices 
make sure that consumers can repair them by themselves so that you know like it the example that everyone always points to is you know if you smash your phone screen instead of getting a new phone you know you should have a, an accessible way to replace that screen so as technology becomes you know more flexible um, and more durable perhaps in some ways it could perhaps uh, allow us to to change our culture okay but like economic growth it's an imperative in society. Everybody's like, we need to have our GDP grow. Do you think that that can continue and remain sustainable? No, hard, hard no, full stop, period. What do you think, Jason? I, to me, like, the, the, the math just doesn't work out. Like, even with new technologies, even with having more sustainable, um, let's say you have something like renewable energy where there's constantly inputs and outputs, but it's not necessarily needing to take more and more and more fuel out of the ground because it's always being renewed, you have maybe some economic growth coming from that technology without increasing amounts of consumption from the earth. Mm -hmm. Like that's a place where I'm like, maybe it could start to disassociate. Okay, so what comes first, technology or culture shift? You have a society that's hooked on growth then it's like that society needs to consume more stuff every year for governments to be happy with GDP growth. So that consuming of stuff on a planetary scale, I, I have to agree with Sydney. I think that there's a hard no on that. I think that it, it can't continue. There has to be a shift in how we measure success in our societies. You know, maybe we should just ask ourselves, what is the point of economic growth? Because I think in the past, we've kind of just assumed that it was good, that you know, as we become wealthier, we can distribute wealth to more people and more people will be better off. But at its core, economics should really just be about being able to provide everybody, like every person, access to fundamental human rights and like their basic needs and opportunities, equal opportunities. And I think if you think about resources and how to distribute them that way I, I think you can come to this point where you don't need growth anymore and you can still achieve these goals you just have to really think about what your goals actually are and not about this mask of growth uh, equals all these other things you should just talk about those things directly yeah I really like the idea of measuring what we care about as a positive thing well, e even just having, you know, like a safe communities for people to live in, right? Like you could say money builds infrastructure, but no, it's like at the end of the day, it's uh, the relationships between people that builds that community of security. Well, it's not necessarily an easy answer. Here's Bill Reese again speaking about economic growth, steady state economies, and becoming truly human. Why do you think that many climate scientists and environmental policy actors don't want to address limits to growth? Well, because it's antithetical to the whole mindset and cultural narrative in which we've all grown up. Progress. Uh, well, progress, that's that idea. You see, humans have to confront a psychological problem which manifests itself in what I would call human exceptionalism. This idea that somehow the rules of physics and chemistry and, and nature generally don't apply to the human system that we are capable, uh, human ingenuity, as co economists often tell me, is capable of overcoming 
any of these kinds of problems. So why be concerned about limits to growth? Why be concerned with constraints if you're operating from the assumption that if humans uh, get more and more efficient, we can extend the life of any resource deposit. And by the way, if we run out of any resource, I have another principle that works. It's called the principle of near-perfect substitution. Human ingenuity is so powerful that it will find a substitute for any natural good or service. Now, it, it, clearly, if you profoundly believe that human ingenuity is the only resource that counts, then there's no limits to anything. We can show over and over and over again that beyond a certain uh, level of per capita income, society gains nothing further from growth. Uh, just as an example, the Canadian economy increased by about 130% between two, 1997 and 2006. Okay? In that period, per capita incomes increased by 70%. So there was an enormous growth spurt during that period. But also during that period, the absolute numbers of unemployed increased, the absolute numbers of people in poverty increased, perhaps not in relative terms, but there were no gains in terms of employment or poverty reduction, you see what I'm saying? And over that period, the average perceived level of well-being among the population declined. So what did we, what did we gain from all of that growth? A, a, a reduced sense of self-worth and satisfaction, as well as simply creating more and more unemployed and more people in poverty. Yeah, but we're a whole lot richer. So what would it look like to you to have a future where humans are positive contributors to our ecological community? <laughs> All right, we're a long way from being positive yeah. contributors. But I think it's an error to think that we're inherently damaging. Mm -hmm. Human beings are a species like any other. And the, the, the problem of human beings is that every species of organism does two things. It has the inherent capacity to grow exponentially, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about bacteria or killer whales, they have that capacity, so do human beings. Mm -hmm. We also have a tendency to use up all of the resources to which we have access. Every species does it. Just drop a single bacterium on a petri dish of nutrient and you'll very soon see the whole dish is covered, all the nutrients absorbed, and the colonies then turn into spores and float away as, in search of new petri dishes. Well, human beings are no different, except we have a leg up over the other species insofar as technology keeps removing the negative feedback. So if most organisms are held in check in their population growth by negative feedback from resource scarcity, food scarcity, habitat scarcity, and so on and so forth. So they never fully realize this potential for exponential growth ad infinitum. Most species then fluctuate in their environments depending on variable conditions. Human beings, for 99.9% .9 of our history, were no different. There has been no growth in human numbers of significance over 250,000 years. The, the major growth has been the spread of humans over the planet. That's where we're occupying all the available habitat, right? And that, that's taken about the last 50,000 years or so. But up until oh, the 19th century, there wasn't sufficient growth in numbers over time or in technological change for that matter for anybody to notice. So if you were born in, say, 1600 and lived to be 50 years old, uh, the technologies in place at the time of your death would be the, pretty much the same as the ones in place at the time you were born. So 99% of human history has not been characterized by growth. That's a very recent phenomenon. I mean, it's incredible to think that it took 200,000 years for the population to reach 1 billion by 1800. 
And within a century, we were at $7 billion. Now, that's an unprecedented explosion. So this is a unique period in history, and yet we take it to be the norm. It's the single most abnormal period in human history. And clearly, we've reached the point where all the signals are that we're undermining the biophysical basis of our own existence. That's what climate change is all about. That's what collapsing fisheries are all about. That's what eroding soils are all about, the decline of biodiversity. All of these are symptomatic that the more the human enterprise grows, the more we stress natural systems. You know, politicians are fond of saying that there's no inherent conflict between the growth of the economy and, and the conservation of nature. That's simply untrue in, in strictly biophysical terms. I'll give you a very simple example. We're here in Alberta, which uh, 150 years ago, we saw a regular annual migrations of 60 million bison and a couple of hundred, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of pronghorns and there were grizzlies and deer and so on and so forth. An enormous diverse and natural ecosystem on the Great Plains. Huge biomass. And the question is, where are they now? And the answer is, they're sitting in our seats. Because the energy flow that used to sustain that many millions of tons of bison and pronghorns and so on and so forth, now goes to sustain an equivalent tonnage of human bodies and, and domestic animals, more domestic animals than humans for that matter. Human beings aren't naturally hostile to the planet. It's just there's too many of us consuming. What we need to do is become more modest. We need to recognize that for all our technological largesse and, and, and technological powers, we're still utterly dependent on the maintenance of life support systems to sustain ourselves. Without those life support systems, without a stable climate, without dependable food production and so on, there can be no civilization. So if we want to have a sustainable civilization as we see those life supports begin to unravel, we have to look at the reality that we have an inordinate maldistribution of consumption. Something like 25% of the world's population use 75% of all its resources, leaving a fraction for the other 75% of human beings. To grow the rest of the world's population to North American or European material standards would require the biophysical equivalent of three to four additional Earth-like planets. Well, we don't have them. So in the long run, if we hope to survive with our existing life support system services, we need to redistribute consumption on Earth. We need to uh, redirect investment from the accumulation of private capital, bigger and bigger houses, bigger and bigger cars, and all of that stuff, uh, to the provision of public goods and services to sustain our population, and also to reduce the footprint of northerners uh, to free up what I call the ecological space to enable uh, required and justifiable growth in the third world. So I would argue that some kind of contraction will occur. And the existential choice is whether we will wait until it occurs because some system that sustains us, climate, food supply, energy, is no longer able to do so, or will we decide as an act of conscious will, as an act of exercising the highest of human qualities, our high intelligence, our capacity to reason from the evidence, our capacity to plan ahead. No other species enjoys those capacities, and yet we don't really take advantage of them in this context. So survival really means becoming truly human. It means exercising our unique capacities for high intelligence, for analytic planning, for thinking ahead, reasoning from the evidence, and designing a soft landing, so to speak. That's how others have referred to it. 
a contraction of the economy in which we move and transition toward what's well worked out in theory, a so-called steady state economy that has a constant throughput of energy and material within the reproductive or self-productive capacities of nature, but the benefits of which are more equity, equitably distributed so that a quarter of us aren't hogging 90% of everything. What are your thoughts? Do you think that individual action matters? Do you think that capitalism is sustainable? Do you think technology can help resolve our issue? Or is it about a cultural shift and social shift? Before we go, here's this week's edition of What's Happening. On Tuesday, March 27th, a group of students at the University of Alberta are holding an event to get students from across faculties together to talk about interdisciplinary challenges of climate change and sustainability. They will feature the U of A Chair of Anthropology, a director from the Alberta Climate Change Office, and a professor of philosophy. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. Thanks this week to our contributors, Ashley Couches, Amanda Rooney, Charlotte Thomason, and Lucas Burroughs, who pressed record. We've been your hosts, Dylan Hall, Sydney Carbonic, and Jason Wong. Catch you next week.